Welcome to the Crushing Cashflow Podcast, where we share phenomenal advice and dozens of decades of wisdom from investors and entrepreneurs of all types and all stages of their journeys. We'll cover many forms of cash flowing assets, such as real estate, stock investing, entrepreneurship, and general finance guidance. Listen in and learn from those who are crushing it out there, as well as those who have been crushed by business or their investments. Now, here's your host, Andrew Shutsky. Welcome back to Crushing Cashflow. Today's guest, we got a full-time real estate investor investing in almost 20 years, been 2006, I think officially on the active side. He's owner of Harborside Partners, which is a multifamily commercial investing company. He's invested in nearly 3,000, maybe and counting, multifamily units in both the active and passive basis and invested in over $150 million in assets. Big, big welcome to Mr. Charles Carrillo. Charles, how are you, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Andrew? Doing well. So what did I miss in your background? What highlights did I not hit on? What do people need to know before we get into it? I mean, so just a 90-second overview of my background is just... Yeah. So I started... My dad has been a multifamily investor since 1984. And wow. so I grew up in the business. And when going through... He self-managed all of his properties. And he had at one point, like probably 100 units. And he had a partner for some of them. He never syndicated them. And he never had third-party management. He always had superintendents. He also already put together his own team. He thought third-party management was too expensive and everything like that. Kind of an old-school real estate investor kind of guy. And he was buying in, let's say, poor areas, right? DC areas. It got better as he got a little bit more, I guess, experienced in real estate investing. Mm -hmm. But when I started real estate investing in 06, after getting out of college, he just really stressed about buying in better areas. And I would show him a property and he would say, no, you know, area is not that good or this is that. And it's difficult for a new investor that's going on actively and to really, you know, have a lot of the ability of saying, no, I don't want to go yeah. into this area, even though that I see rents there and I see this or that. Because if you're every time you speak to more experienced investors, it's usually most investors never go down. They're always going up in quality of properties in other yeah. areas. And it's something I've seen over many decades. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm curious, you know, what issues were you seeing with maybe those class C or C minus or God forbid D class D properties? You know, the obvious crime and things like that. But let's say you can avoid the crime in the bad neighborhoods and maybe it's just a blue collar working class neighborhood. Why avoid a solid, you know, middle C property? I would say that going forward, well, there's two things about this. The main thing is if you're in a growing market, yeah. you can always you have a buffer, right? Yeah. Where you can go into little worse areas, you can pay a little bit more for properties. You have that buffer because you're gonna have the appreciation because of more jobs, but you know, more population. And you know, if the area is improving, you're gonna have lower crime over the whole area. Anyway, it's just gonna be more expensive. Rents are going up, people yeah. are gonna move into an area that they can afford. So if you have that, if you're going into a stagnant market, then it becomes a lot more difficult. You really have to buy for like really inexpensively, or you have to get a really good deal on properties because yeah. you're not gonna have the appreciation helping you along when you're in this yeah. value add or you're you know you're in the ownership stage and business plan of what you've got going on. But if you're buying in good areas and you're buying in C, there's not really an issue. I mean, personally, for me, I would go down right now. We've been really buying over the last three or 40 years only in like B minus and above areas. Yeah. We have, you know, I would buy into a C, C plus area if it was showing a lot of gentrification and if I had a longer hold for it, period. You know what I mean? If I was buying I more of a legacy asset, I would do that. But you're also going to find when you're getting down into C, 
you're finding tenants, your tenant base is, it's not what we would consider like a credit tenant, right? So it's tenant base that is, they don't have many reserves. It's all the stats you hear, hey, paycheck the paycheck, no savings. That's when you're getting into a C-class tenant. And you have to know that it takes a different management. It's not like, hey, you have to pay 100% of the rent by the first. You'll never make any money in C-class if you have that kind of mindset. So knowing how to manage yeah. C-class is completely different than being above. It's just a whole different ballgame. You're absolutely right. And I think, you know, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, a lot of new or inspiring investors, aspiring investors, especially in your first two, three, four, five years, even new passive investors may say, I don't really have a choice. I can't come up with, you know, but I can't envision buying a $40, $50 million class A property on the West Coast of Florida or something like that, like a Sarasota or a Siesta Key or Miami, even, right? So they might look to say, hey, you know, there's still a lot of opportunity, a lot of upside, albeit it carries some risk. But I agree with you. I mean, Crime is one thing I don't negotiate on, right? Like I can't tolerate the risk around having, you know, arson or God forbid murder or something like that. That's mm-hmm. not in doesn't align with my values in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, you know, there are exceptions where the area is gentrifying and it's a temporary problem or you can get police to come in and deal with drug issues. But in general, like if it's a solid working class neighborhood, for instance, we have a 43 unit in South Carolina. It is gentrifying, but slowly, but we've had great success. Like they're really mm-hmm. solid tenants, 100% occupied, very little. We've turned six units in 18 months, right? So maybe that's not you know, a typical example, but they are out mm-hmm. there. It's just, you're right though. I agree. You got to be discerning about, you know, who is a tenant base? Who are the employers in the area? You know, what does the surrounding neighborhood look like? What are the schools? I mean, that's another yep. good factor to look at. You know, are they, is it a, Somewhat of a rundown area, but like solid schools, you know, good people. You know, there's a lot of a lot of factors that go into it. Yeah. So I appreciate your perspective yeah. there. Yeah, the- South Carolina is also a much better market than when we were buying in Central Connecticut. So it's That's like it's just it's true. Much more stagnant in Central Connecticut. So you have yeah. a much better market there that people, you know, just to take into consideration there. Very true. I want to hit on one other thing. You talked about you know, the pros and cons or whether or not to self-manage. And that's something we haven't talked at length about in the show. We've talked a lot about multifamily. So if this is your first time listening, there's dozens of episodes in the past. We won't go into that. Let's talk about why would you self-manage or why would you not self-manage a property? I think it really comes down to what your number one would be if you're house hacking and you're like, I want to get into active real estate investing and I'm house hacking in like a triplex or duplex quad, self-manage it. I mean, the amount of information you're going to learn, you're on site there. There's no driving there. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If there's an issue, you literally walk up downstairs next door and you're at the issue. So yeah. that's one yeah. thing. If you're doing it, usually most people doing that aren't going to be doing that in their 40s or 30s. They're really doing that stuff in their 20s because that's kind of what we do in our 20s. But the thing though is that- <laughs> Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing that right now. It'd be great, but my wife isn't going to do that. But so the thing is that, <laughs> the thing though is with that going forward is that then it comes to your second thing is like where you're making money. I would say like your W-2 or what your profession is. I mean, if you're an attorney and you know you work yeah. for hours a day and you know you bill out at 150 to 250 an hour it doesn't make any sense for you to drive back to a property and deal with all that you know what mm-hmm. i mean that's where it's like get property management and do it yeah and then also to make it so if you're going down that route of getting property management from the beginning you need enough units you know what i mean cuz yeah. if you're buying 5 units you're you know you're probably paying 10% Correct. fees stuff like that it's better in that situation to buy 15 by 20, go in with a partner and buy 30 units or whatever that is and get like, you know, 15, 20 units plus. And then that way, 
even with issues on the property and having management and paying management, and everything like that, you're still making money every month. You know what I mean? Because if you start buying like a triplex, you get management in there and you're like, oh, I penciled it out and I'm going to make this. You're not going to, it's not every month. You'll make like four months of that a year and then someone yeah. moves and you lose for two months and then there's an HVAC system and all the you know fun stuff that goes on with that. Yes, you're absolutely right. It really comes down to there's a cost of paying for management and there's a cost of your own time. You really just have to bet the two against each other and see which one wins. I mean, like you said, the attorney or the doctor, or the lawyer, or the C-suite professional is going to value his time more than 10% of a couple thousand dollar rent payment, yeah. right? So, but you're absolutely right. You nailed it there. What do you see, you know, like a lot of the newer investors, what mistakes are they making? You've been around for almost 20 years in the game. What are you seeing your top one or two mistakes? And, you know, how do you guys try to avoid those? I would say number one is not buying in good areas. And I'm not saying you have to be buying in A-class areas. Just buy in areas. In real estate, everybody knows this. You drive from one neighborhood to another and you turn around and you're like, what just happened? You know, The neighborhood just changed so fast. And usually it's you realize that when it's going down to neighborhoods. And so you know, it can change by streets. I had properties literally a block from each other. You could walk between them in like two minutes, three minutes, and completely different renter base. I had one that I could try to keep people in there for a year and a half. I had one that people stay in there for eight, nine, 10 years. And it just goes to show you how quiet the street is, but how close it is to stuff. You know what I mean? And you really have to get down and really know the neighborhoods when you're buying in these areas. So buy better areas when in doubt, even if it's more expensive. You're going to be paying for better properties, but the better properties are going to get you cash flow, which everybody wants. And that's why we're doing this, but also the appreciation, which people, it's difficult to calculate into what you're doing. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's it's not an easiest thing. Cash on cash is easy to calculate. And the second thing I would say, people raising money before doing a deal. So, mm-hmm. you know, do a deal, house hack a deal, do a few, you know, five unit deal, you know, do something yourself and have some proof of concept before you start, you know, going to your friends and family or, you know, God forbid, putting stuff out just like, you know, through social and trying to raise money from people you don't even know where you don't even have a game plan or any experience on that. Yeah. Because I hear that from a lot of people. And I imagine people have contacted you too, Andrew, and you drill down, you ask a question or two and you're like, wow, you're raising money for a deal. You, you never even bought anything in real estate or rented anything or dealt with one tenant. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's a huge red flag. I mean, how would you do that in any other business? You know what I mean? So, and that's what, you know, I'll add to that. And I love the fact that we're doing these podcasts and I think education is key because you know, I feel really sorry for investors who come in and just don't know better. They don't know to look for a tracker or ask how many, you know, full cycles you've gone through or asked about your lessons learned or asked about who your partners are. I mean, you don't know what questions to ask. It's like fool me once, you know, you've heard that equation, right? You just got to know what questions to ask, right? And I think our role and our job and our duty is to educate investors and what questions to ask to just thoroughly vet operators and just to eliminate a lot of that risk for the two things you just mentioned. So, right. Exactly. That's exactly true. I appreciate that there. You know, speaking of risk, a lot of people will always ask me for other operators, you know, what are the biggest risks in investment? We always talk about the business plan and potential changes in cap rates or interest rates. What do you guys do? What risks do you see in multifamily investing and how do you mitigate? That's a great question. I would say that number one is 
you know, the longer you own properties, if you're ever like, if you're a new investor or anything, the longer you own properties, the less risky they are. And that's what I've realized over the years. You know, you own a property for 10 years, it's going to be a much less risky. The chances of losing money on that are unless you really overpaid right. for it. But if you get a regular loan from a bank and they underwrote yeah. it too, and you're doing it's very hard for you to lose money on a deal like that. Now, if you're buying something, you're like, oh, 24 months, this is a plan. It's like, you know, flipping houses a lot riskier than buying a multifamily yeah. for 10 years. So the thing is, I think, you know, shorter times, getting longer term debt. So when you're getting debt, you want to get something that's where you're going to have something fixed, whether it's for usually with yeah. even with bridge, you've got three years and then you buy a cap on it. You really have five years fixed or even it'll fluctuate like a half percent, which is not that much. You have five years to complete your business plan and you can refinance at that point. I mean, that's a lot of time to really mm-hmm. figure out what you're doing. So that's one of the big things I would say is that you don't want to have an issue refinancing in a very short period. And that's the thing where people are like, oh, I'll get a hard money lender for this multifamily. And you're like, it's going to take you, I mean, that's, you know, you work on something for 12 months yeah. and, you know, you only get it a little bit done from what you think, but it's going the right direction. And now you're paying, you know, you might lose the property because you don't have that financing set up. So you got to really work and figure out to make sure that your financing is correct because, you know, financing is really the biggest partner in the whole deal. You know what I mean? You might have 30, even if you're doing 30% loan to value, you get 30% from your, you know, your partner's. Yeah, maybe you're raising up additional more for capex, which you should be in reserves, and now you have a partner in there for seventy percent. That's from the bank, you know what I mean, or some lending institution. So I think that's very important: is making sure that your debt really aligns with what your business plan is for the project. You nailed it, man. And that's one thing we see in a lot of my responses. I actually met with an investor last night, and he asked about, okay, what happens if we have to keep it beyond three, four, five projected? You know, good question. My response is always, we always look to try to be able to weather the storm. So if it takes us six or seven years, hey, the property is cash flowing, we can hold on to it, right? As long as we can pay our bills, we can pay our investors, ideally, right? If I need to wait seven, eight years, okay, we have the option to extend at a fee. And yeah, it costs us some money, but it, we're not going to lose the property. We're still making money, mm-hmm. but it may, it may, maybe we weather the storm and maybe cap rates go wildly decompress. We haven't seen that anytime in recent history, that's for sure. And don't anticipate it, but hey, you never know. What happens with interest rates, et cetera? So, you know, great response. I want to shift gears into a completely different topic, but I think very relevant and one we haven't discussed at length in this show ever, I don't think, is around virtual assistants. And you and I and many others listening are just swarmed with maybe administrative work, marketing, social media management. How are you guys leveraging the virtual assistants? Where are you finding them and how are you using them? Well, that's a great question because virtual assistants have been a huge game changer since reading Four Hour Workweek years mm-hmm. back, and I imagine yep. everybody should read that, even though it's kind of antiquated. The principles in it are still, still relevant. Still yeah, relevant. just like thinking grow rich. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the yeah. thing is that it's one of those things that we usually use if we're doing one-off jobs. We can just use Fiverr, something like that. We use Upwork. Some of the people we've had, we found off Upwork, and then sometimes we work directly with them. They're like, "Oh, we're changing platforms or this or that," and you know, we have a couple of web people like that. They'll just send us over, you know, bills every three or four months for stuff that they've done on our website. So, Upwork's a great way of getting on there for finding long-term people or even for a short-term project. One-off, like doing logos and stuff. That's like you know, Fiverr kind of things. You can find it there, but it's just you know, you start them small and. I always worried, but I've never had the issue where you're like, oh, I'm not going to give this person enough hours. If you're completely upfront with them, you put in the listing, 
all this kind of stuff and you vet them, you see it and Upwork's much easier because you can see what this person's track record is. And then you can kind of work off that. I mean, we put our virtual assistants, some of them on the same level as just regular employees that you'd have at a firm. I mean, when we close deals, we give them bonuses. I've got three VAs that we do that with. So it's just one of those things where everybody's on the same page. And when I tell them we have a deal closing, I've never gotten you know artwork faster from them to put onto social and anything like that. It's at the same time because they know they're going to get paid in wow. the next week or so for a bonus. And when you're dealing with them, um, you know, dealing with VAs in other countries, I mean, what we are paying, especially with our inflation and everything happening now, we might not think it's that much. But when you look at it, and when I started hiring VAs, I would like research what people got paid in other countries and what you're paying them. And you're like. I'm like paying this person twice what we pay a school teacher here in the United States, you know what I mean? Or whatever it is. So you're like, you start doing that out. You're like, this person's making a pretty good living over there. You know what I mean? So you kind of figure that out, but they have, there's so many people that are looking for remote workers. I mean, it's not like they're pushed into working with just one person, but we've got some that are long-term, we have two since 2019. And then I have one that's a little earlier than that, that we once in a while, I'll just drop them a Skype or something like that. And then we get them all into our Slack after a while and work off of it there. And I'm like, hey, can you take care of this or do that? And it's the best, you know what I mean? And they're working. Usually they work. I don't really have too much of an issue because they're not time sensitive things. They're not like doing many of them aren't doing too many emails. I've got one that does that and they work more of on a US schedule. But yeah, you can use it and just make a list of stuff. And little by little, as you build trust with that person, you can start offloading stuff to them. It makes your life so much easier without having all the risk of literally going in and hiring someone and all the fees and costs and everything like you would do with, you know, a regular employee here in the States. There's a lot of wisdom packed in those last couple of minutes here. I'm much newer to the VA space, but I found it's very freeing to start to offload some of these administrative things. And for me, like social media management, I've also used Fiverr and Upwork with great success. I even looked at doing just a third-party contract basis with you know either a firm or directly. And you can save some money there on an hourly basis, but the vetting process, I found that way to be extremely painful. So yeah. I do agree, you know, Upwork and reviews on there have been a great source of vetting and background checks just for in terms of quality of the work. Saved a lot of aggravation that way. Even if you're paying a little more, so what? You're still paying a very, very reasonable rate, you know, in most cases. So yeah, for sure. And the other thing too is you don't have any long-term contract with them. You know what I mean? If I'm finishing something I'm working with and, you know, even if we pay them a little extra for whatever it is, but it's not like here in the United States where, or any, you know, you're in any country and you have any kind of pushback. Well, you know, now you've got this and I've got to play unemployment. I've got, you know, all this kind of other things that pop up that you're not used to doing that as just a straight contract is it makes it much easier. And, you know, with Upwork, you can even do like the diary views if you're not sure what someone's doing. You yeah, know, you can actually like view their desktop every few minutes and see exactly. what they're doing. And usually, their work will speak for them. And obviously, if they're doing good work for you at that point, not. But like new VAs, if I'm like, what is this person doing? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then you'll just vet them. You give them something small, and then keep like a little list. And as somebody is, you you know, give them something else. And then give them something else. I mean, I've got one VA that works on like our newsletter. And then they also transpose notes. Like if I'm reading a book, I put it down on paper because I'm going through, or if I'm at a conference and I scan them the things and within like a week in his spare time, he will get it all done and send it back to me in a like Google doc. Wow. So it's like, now I have notes from what I was doing, like stuff like that. I mean, you're just like, you know, go through and you're like, fantastic. And I just like proofread it quickly and yeah. save it into a folder. And now I can yeah. review back to it whenever I need it. So there's so many different ways you can utilize VAs. It's amazing. 
You're right. And my eyes were open when I started going on Upwork and just looking at the different categories. I didn't even think about that. Man, I shouldn't be doing it. My time's worth way more than $12, $15 an hour, right? So lots of great tips there. In fact, maybe we should do a follow-up episode on just drilling into the VA piece because you clearly have tons of experience there, which I know a lot of people have asked me about and people just, they do trial and error, right? And why not go to somebody like yourself who's been doing it for a while? So Hey man, I want to thank you for your time. I know we're, we're coming up on the end of the episode. One last question for you. For those that want to know more about yourself or Harborside Partners, or tell us about your podcast too, because I was fortunate enough to be on Charles' show not too long ago. Tell us about all that. How do we end on a good note? How do we get in touch with you? Yeah. So Andrew, my company is harborsidepartners.com. And you can go to it. We have, if you're an interested passive investor, we have a guide in there for passive investing. And I also host a podcast called the Global Investors Podcast, which you can find the links right on Harborside and harborsidepartners.com. And that podcast is really focused around location independent entrepreneurs and professionals that want to invest in US real estate. And it's also with that being said, like foreign investors too. So it gives you a lot of glimpse into US real estate investing, but we have a lot of foreign investors and we have a lot of people that are location independent that want to invest in the real estate, but obviously they don't want to manage it or they're not even in the country to manage it. They're you know off doing their own thing, which is a big thing since COVID. So that's kind of what you know we love talking to people like that, that kind of have that independence and they want to get some passive income. That's great, man. But hey, thanks so much for joining. I appreciate you breaking up so much wisdom in the last 20 minutes. It's been really appreciated. Thanks again. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening in with us for another episode of the Crushing Cashflow Podcast. We have a small favor to ask of all of our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Each subscription and rating will help us massively toward our goal of helping reach as many listeners as possible each week. Thank you very much once again for listening. We're thrilled to have you with us as part of this journey. And we can't wait to share more of these stories with you. Stay tuned for much more to come.